Okay, right on time. Um, let's start up then. So the plan is for today is to do, it says in the syllabus, uh, opera and commedia dell'arte. What we're going to do is take a look at French opera. We've, we've done a bit of commedia, and um, I also want to finish off with, with Mary, though. So we're going to invest our time in those two things um, and maybe either put off commedia or kind of go with the assumption that we've we've covered a lot of commedia dell'arte. Um we have, ooh, we have less than half the class here right now. Um, maybe we should wait a minute. <laughs> let let some other people in. Um, yeah, let's do that. Let's let's wait one or two minutes before we we jump into everything. Just because we are we are unusually underpopulated. All right, well, while we're waiting, I'll just ask any questions from anyone about, well, anything? Okay. All right, so yeah, that's, uh, that's the plan for today. Um, Let's see, for next week, we have, okay, hello, Sonia. Uh, next week, we have a little bit of an adjustment. On Wednesday, I have to go in for a, just a, a quick surgery. So I'm not going to be able to teach, obviously, due to surgery. Uh, uh, so I'm going to send you a, a lecture to listen to, uh, and that'll be, that'll be Wednesday's class. Um, we're going to be working on um, the... the uh, uh, the the Witcherly play, uh, the Country Wife, so enjoy that. I, I've uploaded a link there. Um, you'll be able to read the play. There's also a, a film about an hour of scenes from that play that is on Yukon's website. So um, I've put a link for that as well. Uh, this play is going to be very different from the uh, the plays that we've been dealing with. In part, it is dealing with still, I mean, not in part, but it is dealing with the upper classes uh, in the same way Moliere is, right? It's, it's, this is not a play about peasants or poor people or merchants or, or things like that. Um, Moliere's play is about upper class people. This play is also about upper class people, um, which really was part of a circle of people, which included the Earl of Rochester, who were in the English court. They were extremely important for the English court. Um, and so what we're going to see is another upper-class play. However, the sort of regal standards of decorum that were instituted by the Academy for, for drama don't exist in England. England does have regulatory bodies. Uh, the Master of the Revels is, is one such example. Um, and we'll touch on that. But what we're going to see as we jump back across the channel, I think for one last time, I think we are doing our last English language play um, next week, which means we've done, I think, only only four plays from from England, four plays that were initially in English. So this has been a, um, a, a kind of a non-English centric uh, class, oddly enough. But the... Um, when we jump back across the channel and we start looking at a play about the upper classes there, it's important to recognize 
that the the kind of ribald nature this play is has a lot of sex in it um it jokes a lot about about things like that um that this that the regulatory bodies surrounding theater are very different in england um it's a lighter touch than in france uh the regulations of theater are not about style you know the, the authorities in france are not there to tell you what type of style your play needs to be they just want to avoid sedition right they just want to avoid um uh, uh having a rebellion that kills the king this makes a lot of sense because english history is filled with that including the year 1649 and the play we're reading is i think from 1672 1674 around there so you know it, it's not that long long past um and and that's what they're interested in they're interested in sedition and seditious speech but outside of that they don't have these rules of decorum and so sex jokes sell back then as today and you're going to see a lot more of it um there's a yeah in french theater it's like all regulated by louis the 14th it all goes through him i mean he really is the state and we're going to cover that a little bit today when we talk about french opera uh, and the, the performance tradition there. But when we get to England, England is a lot messier. Um, it's, you know, it's a lot, uh, uh, let's see, there's a lot more competition. Um, and eventually this kind of competition is set, shut down. But illegal theater is also a huge part of English theater history. Theater that was not licensed, that was not allowed, but was still prominent and famous. Uh, and so we're going to cover that. And so in a lot of ways, the the plays are similar to the plays of Moliere, but what's really interesting, I think, is the differences and the historical context which allows for those differences, and which speak volumes about um, art and the nature of art and entertainment and where it comes from. When you have kind of a centralized regulator versus a sort of disparate energy that that feeds into these vehicles. And we could talk a little bit about that as well. All right, that was a longer introduction than I expected. Um, but it, it did allow a bunch, about 11 people to come in. So we now have, um, we're now close to the entire class. Uh, so me bullshitting, well, I'm, I'm good at that. So, so it gave us some time. But let's start by talking about uh, French opera. Um, and we'll do this, this pretty quickly. One second. One second here. I just got to get this started. Okay. Okay, here we are. Um, so opera really is born in Italy, and Italy is not Italy at this time. It's a collection of competing kingdoms and papal states, and the you know, and so uh, over time, um, there's a lot less kind of regulation here. A lot of performers are moving through different areas of Italy. It's very segmented because of its geography. And opera begins to evolve there. 
for a long period, opera is mostly um, mostly Italian, even in Paris. So between 1645 and 1662, you do see the influx of Italian opera, just as we saw the influx of Italian Commedia dell'arte. A lot of, of Paris art, really before the the greater control of Louis XIV and Cardinal Richelieu, was Italian in nature. Um, 1645, why we have that year, was that was, was when Francesco Scarati's La Finita Paza uh, was performed. And it was the first Italian opera performed in Paris in 1645. Um, so Louis is deeply involved in the arts, as we know. And um, two writers, uh, Pierre, uh, a musician, Pierre Perrin, and then a librettist, uh, Robert Cambert, um, Cambert, excuse me, formed uh, the Académie d'Opera in 1669. And that was with, again, the permission of Louis XIV. And their opera, Pionon, I think is how you say that, was the first French opera staged. In, um, in 1672. And so Perrin was granted permission by, by Louis, and what he was given was a 12-year permit to, quote, present and sing in public operas uh, and music performances in French verse similar to those of Italy. And so there's this active attempt to, um, to fund an Italian, uh, excuse me, a French answer to Italian music However, you have to have permission to do that. And so Louis has tight control over that. Um, uh, Perrin brought his opera and they wrote and staged, Perrin and Cambert wrote and staged their, their opera in a space that became eventually known as the Académie Royale de Musique. It went from the Académie de Opera to, to this, to this, the Royal Academy of Music. Um, Pomon was this kind of um, a five-act pastoral drama that included dance, stage effects, costumes, and innovated the recitative. And we're going to talk about the recitative a little more. Uh, what's important also to think here is that, and one of the reasons why we're covering this, even though this is not a music class, is that opera was considered a theatrical event. Um, it is not, you know, singing. It is dance and singing combined, dance and tragedy combined, music and tragedy combined, right? It was really thought of as a, a theatrical moment, and the dance was not necessarily considered ancillary, right? The dance actually predates the opera, and so it's, it's impossible to think of, at this time, opera as really being separated from the presentation. Uh, also, what was very, very important about opera at this time is it has stage effects. It has really expensive costumes. People like special effects, then as today. And so this draws in a lot of attention and allows for a lot of innovation. However, Perrin finds himself in debtor's prison. In order to get out of that, he has to sell his 12-year privilege to the most important musician in France from then until about Debussy in the late 19th century. And that person is the Italian-born um, Jean-Baptiste Lully. Um, there he is. Uh, right. He was this. This guy was well hated. He was born in Italy. He um, Lully, I think, is his Italian name. Uh, but he changed it officially to a French name as he he moved up the ranks. 
he came to France as a chamber boy to a lady. Um, he was a dance master as well. He knew how to dance well, and he helped train Louis, I believe. Uh, they met in 1653, and he helped train Louis to dance. He was made in, He was put in charge of Louis's uh, violin ensemble, um, and eventually he moved up the ranks, eventually being made royal composer. Uh, and you, there was a number of other ranks he, he moves through. He is a very much a political animal. And if you wanted to be a prominent artist at this time, since everything went through the state, you had to be a political animal. And Lulu was that. There's rumors that he had people killed in order to get their position or in order to move in somebody he liked. Um, uh, he was well hated for that reason. Uh, it also might be that... The people disliked him so much they started those rumors, but that's that's the type of person we're talking about when we talk about Lully. Um, he used to collaborate with Moliere. They first collaborated 1661, um, and he would write kind of songs for, for Moliere's work. Eventually they had a falling out in the early 1670s, um, but, you know, they did work together for a number of years. Uh, this here is a picture of the current French opera house. This wasn't built until the late um, eighteen, late nineteenth century. So I think the the eighteen eighties it might have been when it started. Um, however, the opera that occupies it is still the same opera that Lully was working with. They just moved to this building, and it's a nicer building. <laughs> so I, I brought this picture here. Um, he becomes the uh, okay. Somebody else coming in. Okay, uh, he becomes the official uh, writer of the opera, um, 1672. He brings in dance troops into Paris, um, and he starts incorporating... Th there was, before Lully, the dancing style was much more kind of somber and courtly. And the dancing he brings in is still courtly, but it's, it's a lot more lively. So if you look up the Passacaglia or the Chachon, um, they're, they're both kind of versions of the same thing. They are... Um, in English, it's ground bass is the name for it, but you know whatever. Um, they're they're kind of a little more, little more aggressive. They're a little more lively. They're a little more fun, and what ends up happening is this dance style begins to move into music, uh, into concert music, into instrumental music. So you begin to hear like passacaglias in compositions, not just in dance. Okay, Luli. Here is a picture of. Uh, this is a drawing of the premiere of his play, um, The Triumph of Love, not not the same Triumph of Love, uh, his opera. And you could see here the stage is enormous and it's filled with dancers. And he's really thinking, not just in his first opera, as I wrote here, but in, in later operas, about uniting dance and music together. Um, uh, so, you know, that that's what's going on here. It really is an art form that's theatrical, right? It's, it's not, uh, it's not concert music. This is about performance. Um, you know, Wagner is, is probably the next opera writer to think in these three dimensional terms in the way Lully does. Op uh, Wagner, uh, you know, wanted to create a sense of, um, of reality by having a dark space, by having only candles lighted, um, by really kind of drawing you into the world. Wagner kind of invented that. He wanted this total effect of theater. Um, 
and and Lully is also kind of thinking in terms of theatricalism with his music. Um, political animal as he is, he convinces uh, Louis XIV to cap off other theaters as only allowing for two singers. So, you know, in a Moliere play, if somebody wants to have an interlude with a song, well, you, one of two people can do it. <laughs> and there you go. Um, he opened a new theater and put his play Alceste there. And he, when did he die? He died in uh, 87. So between 1674 and 1687, he wrote about an opera a year. Um, and he was allowed to operate without competition because he was... He was uh, Louis XIV's favorite. Um, here is a drawing of supposedly the premiere of um, of Alceste. I'm not sure exactly when this drawing was made. I thought it was made roughly within that time period, uh, but this is apparently what it looks like. Um, this is what he calls his opera initially to tragedy and music. So it's kind of a combination of tragedy and music. Um, very few comic characters. He really, I, I said here he created musical recitative. That's that's not exactly right. Uh, he, he sort of refined musical recitative. So, um, you know, older Italian operas uh, had, uh, had scenes and then you'd have a scene, then you'd have a song, then you'd have a dance. Uh, Lully wanted this all kind of going on at the same time. So you would have arias within the scene and then um, when characters talk to each other, you would kind of talk sing, right? And if you've ever seen opera, there's the aria, and then the, the other type of musical interlude is the recitative, where somebody would still be singing, but it wouldn't be kind of a set, it, it wouldn't be a set song, right? And so Lully is, is doing this in order to create a kind of complete musical theatrical experience. Um, yeah, he has, also doesn't use Calilatora sopranos, uh, different kind of vocal lines really augmented kind of baroque vocal trills um, yeah so he uses a five part string section he, be, he brings in flutes and recorders when doing pastoral scenes but he's also using a lot of other instruments as well even more modern instruments like the timpani he, he uses uh, brass instruments he uses so um, he's bringing in other things on top of that, but the main base is this five-part string section. Um, ritornellos are placed at the opening of acts or scenes, uh, and, and how ritornellos are, are recurring passages in music. Um, if you've ever heard uh, dun 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 that's from Vivaldi, that's a ritornello. And how Vivaldi uses that is he has that played then he repeats it. Then he plays a kind of different type of music. And then he repeats the, the ritornello again. The idea is that you end up creating kind of a... Uh, use the ritornello, that piece of music, to bookend other pieces of music. And in Vivaldi, in instrumental music, what it does is it, it sort of structures your thing. So you could, have a, you could show the development of a piece of music with these kind of borders. So, you know... Um, in, in the same way, you might close the curtain, right, to show the end of an act. With the ritornello, that reoccurs in order to show the end of a musical idea. And really, uh, Lully brings that into opera and develops it. Um, and so you would have, like, ritornello, aria, ritornello, 
um, the second half of the aria, Ritornello, a new aria, Ritornello, a return to the old aria. And so you're able to, um, yeah, like I said, it's sort of like the chapter heading in a book, right? And this is how uh, Lully is able to create longer musical ideas. And and not just him, you know, as I mentioned before, Vivaldi. Um, Another important development, and we'll listen to one of these, is the overture. And the overture, sometimes spelled with a U, sometimes without, if, if we're doing doing it Frenchy, and we're doing it Frenchy here because we're super fancy in this class, um, is a opening bit of music that was specifically designed to be played when Louis XIV walked into the theater. Um, and it's very grand uh, and, and large, and it stayed with... It's the type of thing that Lully more or less invented on his own that remained in music forever. Um, and it's it's actually in movies, too. You know, movies, even up through the 1950s, used to have overtures at the beginning. So you went into the theater and you would listen to an overture before the movie started. Um, that, that comes out of this tradition. Um, he starts using dotted rhythms and a cadence on the dominant chord that resolves before being repeated. So uh, dotted rhythm is just, I, I don't know how many people play music here, but... Um, that just adds 50% length to any note you're playing. So if you're playing like a half note, you now have like a 75 note, or you have th- kind of three beats. Um, he's, his music's written in double and triple meter, and then after he dies in the late 1680s, Pascal Collès becomes the, the person who inherits this. Uh, am I back? Yes, I'm back. Um... And just to give a listen to to kind of a, an overture, this is from his first opera. For this is from Alceste. And you, hear, you know, this is kind of like this is music written for a king to walk into, right? Okay, but you, you kind of get the idea here. <laughs> All right, so we don't have to listen to the whole overture. Um, but good, so that is, that's French opera. Um, that is going on at the same time as uh, Racine and Cornier and, and Moliere. Um, and even though it's not Lully's opera, it, it's later opera, it's also going along at the same time during Marivaux. Um so good. Now we're not, I know we're not doing opera, but I thought you know it's an important it's an important performance tradition, and it's really getting it's really organized here. I'm going to see it a little how it organizes in England as well. Um, I'd like to talk about it in Italy, but I don't think we're doing any Italian Italian theater, so it's a little harder to to justify it. Um, but anyway, so that is that. Any questions about um, French overtures? Yeah, probably. Probably not. Uh, all right, so let's get back into um, Marivaux and the Triumph of Love. So last time we we ended, I think, talking about uh, electricity. <laughs> uh, they're talking about the ending where um, Leontine discovers electricity and uh, and she creates a kind of a conducting current. She's able to conduct electricity. And we see the um, the light kind of shining 
on uh, on the the wagon as um, the the lovers um, you know finally get together. All right, and did we talk about the 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 curtain call and the kind of the modern the modern stuff, the kind of peering at the audience that we get throughout this movie? We briefly touched on it. Okay. Okay, good. Um, so what what kind of, if anybody remembers, because it's, uh, I wrote down where we stopped, but I don't remember exactly. Did we talk about um, why uh, the, the director uses this, this, this thing, uses this technique? It's not a technique, I guess. But why does she include this modern audience in this movie? to show that the original work has a place in modern times. Okay, good, yeah. That was kind of the, the point I wanted to make. That, that kind of connection. Okay, great. So, today let's pivot a little bit. Let's talk about um, let's talk about kind of different ideas of love, um, love and society, love and philosophy, and all those things. So, what we have here is um, is what I would read as kind of two models of love that are going on here. And it's not just me, you know, this is kind of, um, this is something that, that critics have talked about with, with Marivaux more broadly, his plays more broadly, is that we have this, the, the classical split between Eros and Agape. Does anybody know what those terms mean? And I'll type them here. I've heard of them before. I know that I think agape is like that really like deep, like full, caring love, I guess. But I can't remember what Eros is. Isn't it just like, like superficial kind of like lust, I guess? Yeah, that that's that is the general tendency, right? Eros is more like romantic, more more lusty, more um, kind of personal. We don't need to it. It depends on how you read it. Is the kind of that kind of romantic love um, dismissible or less or te- you know, tedious wouldn't be the word, but uh, but flighty, or is it something that's extremely important and substantial? And agape is a kind of deep, a deep um, overriding love, usually of of something higher, something that isn't based on romance. So you might have a, a kind of feeling of agape when talking about a religious experience, right? It would be, um, I, I guess it wouldn't be strange, Song of Solomon does it, but very often when people talk about kind of a deep, over, overwhelming love of God, it's not particularly romantic. <laughs> you know, often if, if people were to do that, we, we'd probably back up a little bit. Um, but that that kind of formula of agape is also given to things like knowledge, things like science, things like philosophy, right? This kind of love of knowledge, this this love of learning, this thing that's supposed to take you higher. Um, that's kind of agape, and then eros is maybe more worldly. So if we suspend the sort of um, the value judgments just for the, the time, and it's fine to be to judge these different categories, um, but if we think of them as both giving value then and and both of them as kind of serious neither as necessarily flighty but both of them as serious let's see if we can explore 
this movie and these values in terms of that binary, that eros agape binary. Uh, and I, I want to talk about the, you know, the the kind of initial affection that our princess has for um, for Ajis, and you know why why that might be uh, not why that might be more than just a kind of um, a romantic lusty affection. Why this thing is actually important. So why is why is there uh, coupling? Why is them coming together? Why that might that be just? It's often referred to uh, as a sense of justice, them getting together in this movie. Why is that? Sorry, could you just further clarify on um, sure. justice? I'm just, I don't know. Yeah, so the, I'll, yeah, that's, that's fine. It, it was a, it's a, a confusing thing. So this is a, a quote from the, the princess. Um, so at one point, you know, she's trying to uh, figure out a way to, to seduce Ajis, and she has to deal with the brother and sister, right, who don't want her to even stay there. Um, and she she turns to her to her uh, friend, you know, the, her servant, Corinne, and says, quote, A sense of justice, as well as some inspiration, has given me a better idea. Uh, and so now, she, and then she decides to seduce you know, the sister, and then later also decides to seduce the brother. So she's being compelled, she says, to appeal to Aegis because of a sense of justice. Why might that be? Um, since her father had usurped Aegis's father and mother from the throne, it would be her way of kind of bringing justice to that because in them coming together Ajish would once again be the ruler of the land yep exactly exactly so you know this is this is a play performed before you know a king at this point it would be it would be I think Louis 15 was ruling at this point um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure uh, but it, it's a play before a king um, and our star is on the throne because her father usurped the throne, right? She's done the illegal thing. So what this play has to do is reveal, I mean, it has to, right? You, you can't celebrate a usurper in an absolutist court, in an absolutist society. And so what this play has to do is it has to say, um, the just thing to do is to restore the throne to the rightful ruler. Right. That everybody agrees with that, including the daughter of the usurper who is on the throne. And so, how does the romantic elements, because they're very much highlighted in this movie, um, how did the romantic elements then contribute to a sense of social order? Well, in that way, they wouldn't have to, because all the people really liked the princess. She was pretty loved by all. They all thought she was a very generous person and all that. So this way, the court itself wouldn't be disrupted at all. Mm -hmm. They would both just become the rulers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, she isn't. It doesn't seem like she's a bad ruler. Right? We, we hear that um, she's very just. The only people who uh, the people who mostly talk about her are her enemies, the the, the philosopher school here. Um, but 
what you see is this kind of this this lust, this desire for this guy is also politically important. It's politically the right thing. Um, now, turning to this other side of this binary, to the agape side, who sort of falls under that that umbrella, that kind of love? Definitely, I feel like Leontine, as soon as you brought it up, I, I like thought of that scene at the end where she creates electricity and she just has this look on her face. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, look what I've done. And she's mm-hmm. so happy. And that's when you brought up Agape, that's exactly what I thought of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. that's, I think, what, what critics think of, too. Maybe not that particular scene, but that the director, she knows what she's doing when she made this, let's just say it. And exactly. And um, Hermocritus, too. Right, both of them. I, I think Leontine is um, my favorite character just because, like, Hermocritus sort of comes off a little bit like a BS artist. And I think that's part of the fun of the movie, right? He's he's like a blocking character. He's he's a clown, too, you know. Um, but Leontine actually makes something in the end. And this kind of love of knowledge produces something. Um I'll ask, without her, if let's just say this this movie was, was simplified and we only had Hermocrates and then you had the, the princess seducing Hermocrates and Aegis, uh, what, would, what would this idea of agape look like if we only had Ben Kingsley's character? I feel like then it would get transferred on to the princess and Aegis because then... As you said, something does kind of come of that. Like their court is the orders restored fully, like the rightful rulers there, and they don't have to lose their other ruler. Everyone's happy. Mm-hmm. But how does this kind of how is love of knowledge? Let me ask it in a different way. How is love of knowledge depicted in this? How is the philosopher means of living depicted in this film? Sorry, Kimberly, I thought you were about to talk, so I turned off the <laughs> mic. Sonia, I think you I think you won, so go for it. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I I feel like um the the love of science, the whole thing is just kind of depicted by the community they built around it. They have all this like machinery, all these like things that they can use for I guess like science purposes. I don't mm-hmm. know exactly what they were for. Yeah. But, like you can tell there's a whole community built around exploring that kind of science. Mm-hmm. There is, but we also remember the community's pretty small, right? It's basically the three of them. And they have a G's who is there in part for his safety. They're worried that if if somebody finds out who he is, he'll be killed. Um but other than that they they're really alone there with with servants i I wouldn't say harlequin and gardner are um part of the scientific community they're they're being paid to be there uh and we also learn that they haven't been in town did they say in three years they haven't like left the estate in in that period of time or is it a year i I can't remember but it's, it was like a, it was a significant amount of time. Yeah, it, that's the point, right? It's it's a significant amount of time. So while there is this kind of, um, while I think with Leontine, uh, especially there's somewhat a respect for her love of science because she, you know, or love of knowledge more broadly because she does something. 
what is the cost of this love of science? I guess. Oh, sorry. Let, let's go with Kimberly <laughs> I was this time. Say, uh, she's, it's more towards the end when she's defending herself and wanting to get married, but it's that idea of solitude. Like she brings it up with Ajish. She says, I'm worried about him. It's just the three of us. We're completely alone. And she even says, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm depressed. And mm -hmm. I think that, I mean, that's the cost she pays is like kind of ultimately like her social happiness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is a, there's a social sacrifice, certainly. We going to, did you have something, Sonia? It was pretty much along those lines, mm. but I also just wanted to add that I feel like a love of science is a love of the logical. You like to have hard evidence for things. And mm -hmm. I feel like, I guess the idea of love as it's presented in this movie isn't terribly logical. So that's all I wanted to add. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not logical at all, right? Um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's people quickly, like the sister quickly falls for a, a person in, you know, in men's clothes who's clearly a woman. I, I, I mean, you know, it, it's not, it's not, yeah, it's not logical, right? Exactly. And that, that disrupts everything. Um and these these people want to live by by logic and thought. They want to live by things that are aren't in the world, right? And they go along and they look at, um, we, you know, we see uh, Hermocrates go out into the garden and he looks at the the busts of the different philosophers, um, and you can imagine him situating himself amongst the busts of the you know the great men of thought, and. And that's a that's a preoccupation. It's kind of a religious preoccupation, right? Because thoughts aren't in the world, right? and and they're isolated from the world, and they're specifically isolated from love, right? And they they bring up Ajis to despise women, um, not because I you know there doesn't seem to be anything wrong with women. Le Leontine is apparently the most talented person there, but because he might fall in love. Right? He might fall in love, and then when you fall in love, it's it's an infection, and it causes you to give up the other world. Which, you know, if you're a priest, that's heaven. If you're in this philosopher's circle, it's ideas and, and I don't know, invention, whatever, scientific knowledge. Um, and so it becomes eros and agape are mutually exclusive. And what happens to the philosophers once they fall under the sway of Eros. I mean, they all start acting pretty silly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Ultimately, start making fools of themselves. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're, they're you know, they, they, be, they become quite ridiculous. Um, and they, they easily believe some falsehoods. Right, you know, like uh, Fiona Shaw's character, Leontine, you know, kind of believes that she's this kind of um, legendary beauty, which, you know, at first is shocking to her. And then, you know, it's like 10 minutes later, it's <laughs> she's sort of, she's, she's digested it. Um, I think my favorite moment for Hermocritus is when he comes out at the end and he's got the, the wig on and the blush on his face. Um, he's become, you know, it's been like, three hours and he's given up all he believes in to become like a dandy in town uh and so they're kind of right in an odd way eros and society will infect you right it will take you over um 
However, what is the movie and possibly the play's position in terms of this quote-unquote taking over? Sorry, could you repeat the question? Sure. Um, so Eros can be a danger to this philosophical way of living. How does the movie treat that danger? I'm honestly not sure. Okay. Is it, so how about this? When the couple gets together, is that what we want or what we don't want? That's what we want. We want. We're like rooting for them, yeah. Exactly. Um, And they are, you know, or she, the princess is the smartest person there, Um, right? She's the one who's able to kind of manipulate everything, even as it kind of weighs on her, you know. I think um, uh, Mia Servino does a nice job kind of showing... (laughs) showing the exhaustion of having to balance three artificial romances in in order to get a a romance that you actually want uh but she's you know she's the smartest person there and she's right for ajis ajis is right for her and so it seems like what we see is that this this world of isolation this sort of return to nature where we can stop and think and learn um that that seems to be the problem with that seems to be there's a bit of an antisocial problem there right ajis has a responsibility as the rightful ruler now it's not his fault he's not on the throne you know it's not his fault that he can't embrace his rightful responsibility but he still has it and living in the woods away from all all women um and swearing off women for the rest of his days that uh, that not only is not a particularly appealing way to live by the standards of the movie, um, but it's also an irresponsible way to live considering his position in society, right? Because if he never interacts with women or falls in love or, um, you know, follows through on kind of the physical affairs of love, he can't continue the society. He can't produce an heir. And so you throw society up to the dangers of political uncertainty. And so Eros, even though we might think of it as, um, and it might be written of as kind of frivolity or just uh, kind of base in terms of its, its affection, it's lusty, right? So it might be base and agape is this, this stretch for something greater. I think in this film, that normal conventional thought is turned on its head. Agape turns out to be this kind of marginal, um, interesting, compelling, but ultimately not necessarily socially engaging way of, of being in the world, way of loving. And Eros, even though it's, it's deeply connected to lust, uh, and because it's deeply connected to lust, also brings people into society and it brings people to a certain responsibility they might have. Um, Ajis, 
as I said before, he needs to be on the throne. That's the right thing. And if you're on the throne, you need to produce an heir. Right. And so I, that's, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I just wanted to say, like, it sounds like they're on like two, they're two different extremes on one spectrum. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the movie's trying to like meet in the middle somewhere and show you that it's, it's not going to work if you're at either end particularly. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's what I was going to say is I felt like there was a balance. Like it kind of shows a balance or even like a mixture of the two. Mm -hmm. As you said, the princess, she coincidentally is the one with the most knowledge ultimately in mm -hmm. the play. But then Leontine also makes her discovery, but wouldn't have if not for the arrows interrupting. Mm -hmm. you oh. know? And I think so. I think it, that is kind of what it shows is like you need. Both. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a really good point. Yeah, Leon, with without um, without that interruption, she doesn't, you know, get, end up getting the thought that allows her to to conduct electricity. Um, good. Do you, what do you think the extreme of, or how do you think, how do you think the extreme of Eros is depicted? That might be a silly question, but I'm I'm still interested in, in hearing your responses. Uh, for me, I think it's when Hermocrates comes out in his wig with his blush. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Actually, it's like the most ridiculous part where, like you said, he's in, within three hours, he's taken everything and just thrown it away mm -hmm. to be this ridiculous creature. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, it's, you know, kind of uh, he, he sort of believes the lie that he wants to believe. Right. Um. Exactly. I totally agree. I think... Um, I was thinking about it, but when Kimberly said, like, yeah, that was the moment, I was like, that's exactly right. Because mm -hmm. I thought that when he came out in the wig and the blush, I was like, this is just not him, you know? It kind of mm -hmm. really depicts the danger, I guess, of love. If you look at it at that extreme, like, that's what's going to happen to you. You're going to end up in a wig and ridiculous blush. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I, well, and to, to be fair, uh, uh, the princess is also in, in a ridiculous wig, too, to a certain degree. Um, she just is able to pull it off a little better uh but i don't know ben kingsley pulled it off pretty well in my opinion honestly. oh did he you liked you liked his wig i did honestly <laughs> i know that like that was i can't remember which french ruler it was it might have been louis the 14th but mm. i know that he was really big on like wigs and all his i took like a european history class oh, okay. in high school mm -hmm. and i remember that like he was very big on like having paintings of his legs and stuff. So I guess it was just like the, it, the fashion at the time. <laughs> but even then, Hippocrates doesn't strike me as the person who would want to like go along with the fashions of the time. But by the end of the movie, he does. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I mean, he, he deliberately wants to avoid the fashions of the time. Right. It's, I mean, it's society is a problem. The social is a problem. Um, and when we look at, when, you know, when we looked at the, I forget if it was Monday or Wednesday, when we looked at the kind of the budding enlightenment philosophies of rationalism and empiricism and uh, return to nature, um, we see those are all kind of mixed up here. It's they're they're going to into nature. I mean, it's it's a beautiful house. It's like a mansion, but whatever, you know, it's outside of it's outside of the city, right? It's outside of the court. It's it's in the world. There's swings on trees you can you can go on. Um, um, but and it's also combining you know Hermocrates's uh, his thoughts, his kind of rational thoughts. We don't 
learn what they are, uh, but he's doing that. And then the empiricism of Leontine. And so there is this kind of enlightenment thing going on here. Um, but it's, you know, but the problem with kind of going into nature and being away from everything and just speculating all the time is that it, it's, you know, the, the problem of probably academics even today, which is it's inert. It doesn't do anything in the world. Right. Uh, you know, and, and I don't know if the movie's entirely saying that because I think Leonti's victory in the end isn't isn't victory. And you guys, Sonia and, and Kimberly, you know, both said this. The movie seems to be more moderate than science is is inert and society is where things happen. Um, it seems like Leonti's victory in the end of the movie is an authentic victory. And it sort of joins in with the the romance. The light is shining on the carriage as the princess and Agis come together for the first, or not the first time, but um, for to, to establish or consummate their relationship. Um, but still, there is this kind of problem with, as you guys are saying again, extremes and kind of pushing yourself out of society. I think this movie, and I think uh, Marivo more generally, is about um, is about they're conservative. Right, in the way Moliere is conservative. It's about coming to the middle, finding a reasonable standard, and incorporating that into society. Because the society we have is pretty good, and we shouldn't disrupt that. And so our actions should be taken to maintain order and to maintain a kind of an, an establishment. Any other thoughts before we go? We're at 109. Um, I, I just wanted to point out when you said about the Eros and we all kind of said Hermocrates mm -hmm. and then you had mentioned the princess. I feel like the director of the movie did a really good job with pointing out the scenes where there was a lot of extreme Eros because <laughs> they got very choppy. People started talking really fast. They mm -hmm. were pulling around, like, you know, like clearly like the mm -hmm. cuts weren't blended and it was like mm -hmm. difficult to watch almost to be <laughs> dizzy. But I think that that was their way of highlighting those moments. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's like a drug. It's like they, they dropped acid or something like that. It's not, maybe not that extreme, but yeah, it, it, it infects them, right? Them being Hermocrates and Leonti. And what's interesting is when the princess does it to Aegis, um, Aegis, excuse me, I, I'm now calling him Aegis. I used to work for a company called Aegis, so I, I'm allowed to make that mistake. Um, but when the princess does it to Aegis, uh, it, it happens to her. It sort of reflects back on her. And maybe that's why he's he's the right person. That's how we know he's the right person. Because when she tries to to control the situation, she finds herself not quite able to control herself. Yeah. Any other comments? I just, I don't know, I guess I just want to say really... I enjoyed the movie, and Leontine was my favorite character, too. Yeah. You know, I just really liked her, and I liked that even though she didn't get the guy in the end, she still, I found, I feel that she found something deeper, like a really good sense of, like, accomplishment. She created something, and I really, really loved that for her. Yeah, because without that, it, it kind of sucks, right? I mean, her heart is, you know, not only does she not get the guy she wanted, the guy she wanted never existed. Uh, that that That's a real heartbreak um and i don't think the movie wants to be that hard on her so you know it, it gives her that right or she's able to she's able to accomplish that and um 
Yeah, I agree. And, and it ends up making the treatment of her much kinder than it otherwise would be. I'm glad you guys liked it. Go ahead. Sorry, I'm not sure if like the original play meant to do this. Maybe the movie um, specifically did, but from what I, what I got from it was like empowering to see that like oh, Leontine didn't end up. She didn't need Eros in the end, you know, to be to be happy, to be fulfilled, to feel that kind of love. So in a way, it does kind of end up meeting in the middle for her, mm-hmm. because even though it is like her, well. <sighs> I don't know. Never mind. I forgot where I was going with that. That's my train of thought. But I just, I really liked how her ending went. And I thought that it was very much like showing that she didn't, she didn't need anyone else in the end to be happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She, she has, she has something that she's able to do. She's able to, yeah, recover. She doesn't, she ends up not needing this, this thing. It's, it seems like Hermocrates is the, the big loser here. But even there, he, he kind of gets to share in her glory a little bit. But yeah, I, I think she does um, She does have a, a sort of independence that comes from her, her mental capacity, you know, from her discovery. And I, I like how, I think you guys pointed this out, and I, you know, more than I realized, is that the movie does moderate between the kind of the romantic school and the philosopher's school. That there is something important about about these discoveries, about the, these thoughts, about these people who go off and kind of make discoveries. Now, that's what makes the modern world. And I think, even, you know, in the very end, when they're singing before a modern audience, back again in modern clothing, you know, they've, they've changed for the curtain call into modern clothes, that, you know, our, our modern world is impossible without uh, people like Leontine. So I think you're right. I think it is a little more moderate than, than when I first watched it. Or I thought when I first watched it. Any other thoughts on this? And I'm glad you guys liked it. It got terrible reviews. It was universally panned when it came out. Um, really? I, yeah. I enjoyed it. I thought it was a cute story. Yeah, it, I think it's well made. Too. It got like a 41% on Rotten Tomato. Uh, something like that. So it's, you know, you're... you're yeah, it, it is it got panned and I don't get it. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I thought when I did this class, I'm going to teach this movie because, you know, it, it's, it's an injustice that it was hated so much. Um, but I'm glad you guys helped, uh, at least in part, save this movie's reputation. Um, and so good. So thank you for that. Uh, this was a lot of fun and I am excited to go back to England and study the restoration and the restoration rake. And I will, I will see you guys then. Please email me um, if you need to meet, and I'll stay on here for another few minutes in case people need to talk.